We're like prepping for uh, being quiet. I'm going to ask you questions this morning, and hopefully some good responses. You guys ready? Uh, I'm excited about this morning uh, for a couple reasons. One, I know that uh, me speaking this morning was planned by God a long time ago. The reason I say that is our guest speaker for this morning texted me at 10.30 last night and said, hey, I can't speak tomorrow. And uh, so that's not a surprise to God. It was to me, but um, not a surprise to God. But on a serious note, uh, Rodney McCulley, uh, who works at YFC, he was scheduled to speak this morning. He has been a long-time supporter of this community and uh, is just doing amazing stuff in our city. Uh, his niece went into the hospital um, and went into the ER. She was diagnosed with Steven Johnson syndrome. Uh, so for like the two people that know what that is, great. For the rest of us that have no idea what that is, it's um, from what I understand uh, via the Mayo Clinic online, um, it is a, like a reaction to medication and or infection uh, that leads to like a blistering of the skin, the, the like furthest layer of the skin, which then ultimately like boils to the point where then it like sheds off. And uh, pretty obviously painful, not great. There's only like roughly 20,000 cases of it in the United States. Um, and so she's in, in the midst of treatment. So what I thought we would do just here at the beginning is pray for Rodney, for his niece, and for his family um, before we uh, enter into the scriptures, okay? Father, we... We ask that you would uh, grant grace, provide peace, that you would give comfort in the midst of pain, uh, that you would uh, support Rodney and his wife and family as they care for his niece. God, I can't imagine the uncertainty, not knowing what it was for a while, and then uh, realizing the severity of it. Uh, God, we pray that you would bring healing that that would come uh, quickly. Uh, I know if it's medically treated well, it will uh, last for a little while, but uh, the prognosis would be good. But God, you could make that happen so much faster. And so we ask that you would move on her behalf, that you would uh, care for her and the family. Uh, and God, we just um, pray that this week, as we're reminded of Rodney, I was reminded of YFC that we might pray for that ministry, that we might pray for him and his family, um, and that you would work uh, as only you can in that situation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, if you would, grab them and turn to Matthew chapter 9. Um, this morning, we'll, we'll put it up on the screen, but I think it's important for us to turn there for a couple reasons. Uh, one, I think it's good for us to get in the habit of actually opening the scriptures. I know a lot of times, um, well, if, at least if you go by statistics, this might be the one time you do it this week. Uh, I don't trust that to be true of this community, that we're hopefully uh, recognizing this, this is part of what gives life, right? Uh, that we understand our orientation for living the way of Jesus as we engage with the scriptures. Uh, that we have a unique, unique privilege, and that is to be able to open the text and to read it together and to, uh, to worship together. And so 
uh, this morning, uh, we're going to do that. Before I read this section in uh, Matthew 9 that we're going to be looking at, we're going to be looking at two different sections this morning. Uh, we're still talking about this idea of what it is that Jesus did, and then how is it that we're supposed to emulate, copy, imitate, follow, do the same kinds of things, right? Uh, that if Jesus is setting the model, if he's the perfect representation of who God is, and the way in which he lives is the model for how we're called to live, then it's an opportunity for us to examine what it is he did, and then to ask, how, how do we do something very similar? How do we copy what it is he's doing? And uh, the danger with the talk this morning, as is probably always the danger, but I, I sensed it more um, last night and this morning, is that sometimes when I communicate or who the intended target person is might not hear what it is that God is saying, right? All of us can be guilty of that. Or we might assume that what he's asking of us is different than what is true that he's asking. And so we talked last week about the Spirit moving in our midst, right? And so my, my hope and prayer and my belief is that the Spirit will guide us and guide each of us individually and then collectively into an understanding of what he's calling me to do and what what he's calling you to do from the text, okay? So that's the premise I have going in. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. Matthew 9, 35 through 38. It is a uh, pretty well-known passage, a well-known section of Scripture. It says this, And Jesus went throughout all of the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest and send out laborers into his harvest. Now, there's a lot of uh, particular things we could talk about in this little section of scripture. We could probably go for three weeks or more just on these few verses. Uh, there's a, like a treasure trove of ideas, concepts, teachings in this passage. But there's one really interesting motivation in everything that's in that passage. One really key motivation. And that motivation, if you see it right in the middle, if you look down at the text, it says, when he saw the crowds, he had what for them? Compassion. He had compassion for them. Somebody define for me, what is compassion? Care. What else? A love and concern. Good. What else? Empathy. Understanding. What else would you add to that? Suffering with. Good. Any others? Love that moves to action. So we have all these like definitions in our mind. All these ways of understanding compassion. And Jesus, the text says, was moved to compassion. I love the way that the New Testament Greek basically translate it. It, uh, it means this, that he felt something in his bowels, right? The language for compassion is 
your guts, your bowels. We might say like he was moved in his heart. That might be the language we use kind of in our contemporary culture. But the text says that he was moved in his bowels, his guts. Literally like intestines. The innards of him. To put it in modern language, it means that he felt it, you've heard this before, that he felt it in his gut. Sometimes it, you hear people say, like, I felt like a punch in the gut when that happened. Like it hurt me to the very core of who I am. Like I felt it so deeply that I felt like I was ripped apart inside. And you, you see this all throughout the Gospels. This isn't the only time it says that Jesus was moved with compassion. Moved to his very guts about something. You even see in the scriptures that it says that over all of Jerusalem, he did what? He wept. That he looks out and sees all of the city, sees all of the needs of the city, sees the brokenness of the city, sees all the needs of the people in the city, and it breaks him to the point that he sheds tears. That it so tears him up inside that he, he feels it so deeply. One of the questions we probably should ask of ourselves is, do we feel it that same way? Are we so moved for this city that we weep for it? Are you so moved for your neighbor, for your coworker, for your co-student, for someone that you're in a hobby with, that you are broken tore up inside at their loneliness, at their hurt, at their sense of guilt, at their lack of freedom? Is, is, is it tearing you up inside? Because I think compassion, if we understand what this text is saying, if we understand the general idea of compassion, compassion should cause us to enter the places of pain. It should cause us to share in the brokenness. That we should mourn with those who are lonely. That we should enter into other people's condition. Compassion, the text says that he saw the crowds and he had compassion on them and it moved him toward them. Right? He didn't stand at a distance, arm extended. It moved him to prayer. It moved him to action. In fact, both of those things he calls us to, right? Harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Do what? Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send laborers, right? Prayer and action. Prayer and action. That it moved him so, and he's trying to express or pass that on to his disciples, right? You also should be moved to prayer and action, is what Jesus is saying in the text. So I think the challenge for me, and the challenge for us, is are we being moved? Are we feeling it in our gut? Or are we aloof to it? Unchanged, unconcerned? 
Let's read the text and go a little further into what it's saying. It says at the very beginning, And Jesus went throughout all of the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. Now, I I think this is a real significant part of the text. It's probably one of those parts that we jump over simply because it feels like the end of the text is better because it's in red letters. And so we're like, well, I mean, Jesus said that, so that's like super important, right? And the harvest, that's really significant. And I agree with all of that. But we sometimes just glance right over the text and go, well, that's just uh, some filtered information. That's just some stuff we don't really need to know much about. But it's significant, I think. Because what it's demonstrating is Jesus' not just compassion for the people, but His willingness to engage in the work of the ministry. So he had this feeling for people. He had this desire to do something about it, but it actually means that he engaged in hard work. Let me describe it this way. Jesus engaged in ministry that was physically exhausting. Now, they didn't have Uber back then. They had no really great public transit system. If you think ours isn't very good, theirs was far worse. Jesus, the text says, didn't even have a place to lay his head. So if he's got nowhere to call home, he really basically had his possessions on him. It's not like he's riding around in a chariot to get from place to place. He's walking. That might be obvious to you, but it's pretty obvious. Jesus is walking. Now the climate in which he's walking is hot and arid and mountainous. No smooth terrain. It's hard. They didn't have really cool roads. No superhighway where he could jet from, you know, Samaria to to a different part of Galilee. You know, chance to go from Bethlehem on, you know, the superhighway to some other place. He just walked. He uh, didn't have any sweet hiking boots. Just pretty much sandals. And a tunic. Might have like had some cool thing to make it like shorts, maybe. You know, I don't know. Like super hot at certain times. I don't know what the fashion of the day was. But he was not probably dressed for it, right? He wasn't. There's a lot of things that were kind of in the way, right? He didn't have AC in the car. I mean, how many of us are like just frustrated during the summer when your AC ran out or your car's old enough, it doesn't really have, and you're like, oh man, I can't believe I drive from here to there with no AC. Jesus is like, whatever, man. Like, <laughs> I walked everywhere with no AC. Okay? Now, the region he's in, the region that he's in, the region that's being described is 70 miles by 40 miles. A fair amount of acreage that he's walking. So he's going from place to place. It says that he went from every, to every town and village and ministered to all the people. And he did this, we know, over a course of a few years. But here's what's fascinating about it. Josephus, who was a writer at the time, recorded that at the time of Jesus in Galilee, there was about, or approximately, or he specifically said, there were 204 towns and villages in that 70 by 40 square mile blockage. 204. 
He also recorded that every one of the towns, if it was listed as a town, it had more than 15,000 people in it. If it was listed as a village at the time, it was less than 15,000 people. So historians have said there's somewhere in that region, or, or 70 by 40, somewhere in that space, there was between 1 million people on the short end of it and 3 million people of it on the high end of it, that the text is saying that he went to every town and village, interacting with people, going from place to place, walking, hiking, moving, constantly on the go. I'm going to guess he was physically exhausted. He was tired. He was putting in effort. But I would also go as far as to say that he was emotionally exhausted. Look at what the text says again. That he went through all the towns and villages, covered that part. What did he do? He was teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. That means that he was healing people. He was touching people. He was touching lives. He was addressing needs. He was constantly meeting people. He was always engaged in significant conversations. He was caring about the very uh, uh, hurts in the lives of people. Even more so than us because he actually knew internally what they were already thinking and feeling. So like those people of deep empathy in our community that like you can just resonate and you know how a person feels. That's just what they've expressed to you or what you're picking up on. Jesus got it all. Right? So he's feeling all of that for everyone he's coming in contact with. Did he see all three million? Probably not. But I'm going to suggest that he saw quite a few people. And all along the way, the scriptures say he was healing every disease and every sickness. Now, it's funny to me how we do biblical interpretation. Because I've heard both of these things stated before in talks. One was this. Every disease and every affliction means that if there were ten diseases and nine afflictions, he took care of all ten diseases, like leprosy would be one and paralysis would be another or something, and then all afflictions, so whatever those afflictions were, he dealt with those two. Okay? But it's not that he healed every single person he saw, and nobody had issues or anything in those villages anymore. Other people go, no, no, every means every. So like everybody he saw, he healed. The reason I say this is because I don't think that matters. It's really not the point. I don't think the author's like, oh, he missed one, actually. It was like almost every disease and almost every. It was like he's doing this constantly for a significant period of time. He's working hard. He's emotionally exhausted. So what might we draw from this? I'm sure there's a lot of things that we could draw, right? One would be that Jesus puts in a significant amount of effort to the mission. In today's language, he worked his butt off for the kingdom. Hard effort. He grinded it out. So here's a question. If we were to measure our effort as a community. Actually, let me pause there. I'm going to get more personal. If you were to measure your effort for the kingdom, your work, your investment, your commitment, 
How would you describe it? You don't have to answer it out loud. But I want you to stew on it. How would you describe it? Now this is where the risk comes in because some people that are out there honestly serving nonstop and pouring tons into the kingdom, they hear that and they go, man, I'm really not doing enough. I really should be doing more. Right? I know. I've, I've heard lots of messages like that and people sense that feeling, right? And then other people, I'll use an illustration from soccer, other people are like this. Remember, my, I see my job as a soccer coach not to make just great soccer players. More importantly, and most of the time I've coached boys, men, my job, I think, as a soccer coach is to learn to change boys into men, to help them to understand responsibility, to understand what it means to be a team player, to understand the significance of hard work, to know what character is, to to understand values in life. Like, that's part of it. And I would like for you to put the ball in the goal, too, right? There's multiple things I want to have accomplished. But the main things, I want to keep the main things, right? I remember pulling this one guy aside one time. And uh, we got done with the game. I think we won the game. And this was a player that I would say, he did fine. He could do far more than he thought he was capable of. And far more to help the team. So I pulled him aside. We were wearing white uniforms. And I said, uh, hey, look at your uniform here for a second. It's after the game. Just, just look at it. He's like, yeah. Like, it looks good, man. You look, it looks good. You look good in your uniform. I said, now look at Caleb's uniform over there. What do you notice about Caleb's uniform? He's like, it's the same uniform, coach. Yeah, not so much. Look at it again. What do you notice? It's like, well, I mean, it's just mud all over his shorts. Mm-hmm. And grass stains all over his shirt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like, look at your uniform again. Okay. Now, you were both in the same game, were you not? Yes, coach. How come Caleb's uniform looks like that? And how come yours... Let me touch it again. Wait, it's not even sweaty. How, how come... You could wear this for the next three games and no one would know the difference. Right? Here's the deal. Some of us think we're in the game. You run around on the field. You kick the ball. But we have to ask the question, are we really in the game? Are we grinding it out? Now, I'm not saying this guy's shirt should look exactly like Caleb's shirt. Not saying that, so don't hear that. But I am saying there may be a grass thing. Maybe, at least, right? Like there, there, there's effort, there's intensity, there's this desire. Like, here's the thing. Caleb was moved in his gut to play the game to the fullest. Jesus moved in his gut to do it, right? Are we moved in our gut, and is it moving us towards actually not just being in the game but like being dedicated and committed and devoted and all in to the game does that make sense now i give you that point really not the point i want to make the point i want to make is the next point okay and you're gonna feel like i'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth because i am okay so let's go 
to uh, the book of Luke, Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Now Luke is a, a significant, chapter 4, very significant passage of scripture. Okay? And don't say to me, well, Russ, they all are. No, this is a really, really significant passage of scripture because Jesus comes on the scene early on, okay? Before we even get to this section, he, in the very first part of Luke 4, he comes on and he says, I am here for a reason. He walks into the synagogue. Do you remember this? He walks into the synagogue. They hand him the scroll. He turns to Isaiah. He opens it up. And he says, I am here. And the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And He's brought me here to proclaim good news to the poor. To proclaim that the captives will have liberty. To say that I will recover sight for the blind. And he's declaring all of these enormous statements for himself. And basically says to them, yeah, that thing you read back in the day that you've been waiting for, it's me. I'm here. I'm going to do it now. Right? And half the group was like, oh man, I hate this guy. There's no way. Who does he think he is? Does he think he's God or something? Yeah. Right? And the other half is going, it, could this be? Is this the Messiah? So this is a significant section of Scripture. You go a little further in Luke chapter 4. And it says this. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appeared to him on her behalf, or they appealed to him on her behalf. He stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her, and immediately he rose, she rose and began to serve them. So you're getting a picture of what's happening. Jesus is in the midst of healing, gets invited into a house, heals. He's now dining, sitting around. Now, a little bit later, it says, Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judah. Right? So you have this description. Jesus starts off saying, hey, I, I'm here. I've arrived. All the things that you've been wondering about, all the things you've been waiting for, I'm going to start to fulfill those. And then he starts to. He starts to heal people. He meets needs. He goes to the house. He gets invited to a house. He heals someone in the house. Dinner's happening. He goes back outside. He's with the people. And then the text says that anyone who had someone sick in the region started bringing people to Jesus. Okay? And it says that every single one of them, he saw, he dealt with, he talked to, and he healed. One after another. We have no idea how many people. But here's what's interesting. Look down in verse 40 with me. First phrase, I think it's in verse 40. First phrase. When the sun was setting. Okay? You guys help me. What time of the day is that? Nighttime. 
So Jesus, it's nighttime. Sun's starting to go down. Uh, they can't like flip on the halogen lights and brighten up the place anymore, right? The sun is setting, the day is ending, and what is Jesus doing at that moment? Healing, right? Touching lives, making a difference, doing ministry, whatever words you want to call it. Okay, verse 42, what does it say? First line. When it was day. When it was day. Now, conveniently, what we do is we like put a little... Uh, like, oh, okay, and then Jesus did something different. So we put Jesus preaches in synagogues. So that part's really not inspired, in case you're wondering. So between 40 and 42, let me throw out an idea to you. Jesus, sun was setting, starts doing what? Healing. Changing lives, making a difference, doing ministry. Verse 41 is happening. Verse 42, nothing's changed. We're in the same time. And, then, and when it was morning. Which means what? I'm going to throw out the idea that he was actually doing, he pulled an all-nighter. That's what I'm going to say. That he started doing ministry, started changing lives, started making a difference, and then he was up all night. And he's going from person to person, healing the whole time, laying on hands, changing people's lives. And in the morning, what does the text say? It says, in the morning that he left the next day for the desolate place, or he left the next day for open country, or he left the next day to go be by himself for a moment, right? And then, according to the message, it says this, but the crowds went looking, and when they found him, they clung to him so he wouldn't go on. The uh, net version of the scriptures says, yet the crowds were seeking him, and they came to him, and tried to keep him from leaving them. The version we're reading, you can look at it right there, whatever version you have. The the point that they're making is that Jesus was doing something significant with the people, and then they come and they say, don't go, stay here. Do more of it. I'm going to throw out for speculation that what probably was said was, hey, hey, don't go, don't go. There's more people coming to be healed. We've sent word to the next village. We've talked to people right at the town next to us. People are hearing what's happening. Don't go. There's more people coming. They probably, someone said, your message gives life, and we want my cousin, my friend, my family, my neighbor, my whoever, to hear the gospel. Share it. Stay with us and do that. Some are arriving soon. Some people are traveling for days. They will be here. Don't go, don't go, don't go. Right? What does Jesus say? It's a pretty powerful two-letter word. He says, no. Jesus said, no. Nope, got to go. Now, there were real, pressing, important, great, significant, whatever word you want to use, things to be done. This is ministry at its finest. This is lives being changed. 
This is crowds clamoring for Jesus. This is people who needed healing. This is people who needed the gospel. This is people who wanted to be heard or cared for. This is people that wanted to be loved. And Jesus says, no. I have to go. He says a couple things. One, he's on his way to a desolate place. In fact, the scriptures tell us that he went to the desolate place. And he also told them, I can't stay here and just do it here. I have to go somewhere else. He said no to ministry. He said no. So, let me illustrate it this way. Because this part is, uh, I, I think, helpful, at least for me to understand it. Okay? The, the passage says that people were clinging to Jesus. The passage says that people wanted him to stay. I'm going to use Ryan here for a second. If you'd come stand right here. Okay, do me a favor. Excellent. Okay? So, he represents the crowds of people. They're wanting Jesus to stay. There's more to be done. There's ministry that needs to happen. This life could be changed. The lives of all of his friends could be changed. They're saying, please, 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 don't go, don't go, don't go. Right? Now, there's two ways. Jesus says no, and then there's two ways that he could have done this. He's leaving, right? He said, no, I'm leaving. Now, one way that he could have done it is, hey, Ryan, sorry, I got to go. I'm on my way. I, I apologize. Just stay there. Okay? Like, everybody, I got, I got other stuff to do. Right? Like, right? You, like, understand. And he could have walked this way, like, the whole way to the village. Okay? To the next one. It could be really weird, probably. Right? To constantly seeing and just walking away from it. But there's another option. He could have walked like a normal human, like the rest of us probably would have. Ryan, I appreciate it. I gotta go. And then he which means what? Jesus turned his back on ministry. Jesus walked away from opportunity. Jesus chose to say no. It's shocking. Almost sacrilegious for me to say that he turned his back on people. Because we go, that's not my Jesus. He did every, everything. Healed everyone. He turned. And he said no. Let me give you a couple maybe takeaways. Something to stew on a little bit. Number one. I think we have wrong measuring sticks in the church. We're good at measuring things. You probably understood that, right? But I think we have a wrong way of measuring things. Well, like one of the things we tend to measure wrong is sin. You've probably noticed that, right? Like this is really bad sin. This is not so bad sin. This is like the really heinous thing. This is the really little white lie, right? And then like we, we try to define which one's which. And, and usually, ironically... Ironically, whatever one I'm doing tends to be lower on the, like the scale, you know? So we do it with sin, but I, I think we also do it with, with right things. We do it with wrong things, like, hey, you shouldn't do these things, and here's the scale. But I actually think, in a weird way, we do it with right things. 
we evaluate what is the greater thing to do for the kingdom. I could do this for the kingdom, but or I could do this for the kingdom. Oh, you, you, yeah, you only do that, and I do this. I mean, yours is really important. I mean, God says all of it's important, but mine's just a little bit more important. Have you ever found yourself in that comparison game? Have you ever found yourself saying, well, I mean, hey, the Great Commission is more important than a different commission? telling the interns the other day, anytime someone says to me, hey, what do you think about the Great Commission? I always say, which one? And they go, you know, the Great Commission. And I'm like, yeah, and that's why I'm asking, which one? Right? And they're like, well, the Matthew one. And I go, okay, well, great. I think it's awesome. Yeah. What do you think about Mark's? And Luke's? And John's? And Luke again in Acts? This is five. So which one? Well, like the most important one. Well, again, there we go, right? We find ways to say this being more important than this. So we evaluate things quite weirdly. I remember, this was a few years back, small group got done. We were at our house. It's about 10.30 at night, maybe a little bit later. Last people left our house for group. Uh, my phone rings. It's a young man. Hey, Russ, I need to get together with you. Okay, why? Well, I'm really struggling with pornography right now, and I thought if I came and had a conversation with you or if I met you and had a conversation, that like we could talk through it, and then I wouldn't struggle with it. And I was like, great. Uh, I can't come right now. He's like, really? You can't come? I'm like, nope, can't come right now. What, why? I got I, something very important to do. I'm sorry. Can we schedule a different time? Yes, can, can we meet tomorrow morning? Can we meet tomorrow morning? And can, can we talk through this? I really want to change my life to be different. And I was like, actually, I cannot on Saturday morning. I apologize. I already have a previous commitment. And so I can't do Saturday morning. And, I, and then I kind of jumped in and said, hey, I actually have some time on Monday. I'd be happy to meet with you on Monday. Okay? Now, what did I have that was really, really important on Thursday night? After small group. Why couldn't I do it right then? I'll tell you why. That was a really important thing. But a more important thing at that moment was for me to tuck my kids into bed. And for me to tell them that I love them. Maybe read a Bible story. Maybe invest in them in some way. Because I had told them I was going to do that. What was really, really pressing the next morning that wouldn't let me meet with them? I'll tell you what was really pressing. I was helping my kids learn to make pancakes. Now you might go, whoa, 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 whoa. Making pancakes here. Helping someone with a life issue here. Bad choice for us, right? Or sometimes you start imagining, you go, well, what if he was going to give his life to Jesus? Because that would be like here, and, you know, pornography bad, but it more like here. So, like, give his whole life to Jesus. And I would go, yeah, well, I had already scheduled pancakes. Russ, what if Jesus comes back? I think he can figure that out. Jesus is in charge of that. I'm not. Okay? I don't think it's a shock to him that 
so-and-so hasn't yet committed his life, and actually he doesn't need me to be there to commit his life. If he's really convicted of it, the Spirit's got it under control, actually. Now, some of you are going, you're a pastor. I can't believe you would do that. Pancakes? Pancakes? Seriously, pancakes? It's this, right? Here's the interesting thing. What came first, the creation mandate or the Great Commission? Creation mandate. What does the creation mandate say? To rule and to reign, to subdue the earth, to teach people to live into that. And also, another important one, would be the Great Commission. I, that morning, chose for my son and my daughters to learn to rule and reign over the art of pancake making (laughs) than over this. And guess what? I think that's what God wanted. I said no to ministry. What do you need to say no to? What do you need to say no to? Because here's the second point. I don't have to do it all. Repeat that with me. I don't have to do it all. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you don't have to do it all? Do you orient your life around the idea that you don't have to do it all? Look, newsflash. You are not the Savior of the world. I am not the Savior of the world. And Jesus was the Savior of the world and turned His back on ministry and said, No, I don't need to do it all. Shocking, but true. If you're anything like me, you might try to do it all. You might even try to orient your life around like, well, I could fit in one more thing. And this always happens to me. You can ask my wife. This always happens to me. I'm like, I sign up for something and it's fine because it's like on this date. And I sign up for something else and it's like on this date. 